Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish-tech-news. Hello, I'm your host, Effie Pilarino, and today I have uh, the pleasure to connect and introduce uh, Dr. Oriol Huadevilla, who is a well-known voice in the fintech area, um, actually a global uh, voice, uh, as he is an honorary fellow at the Asian Institute of uh, International Financial Law at the University of Hong Kong. He's also a board director at the Global Impact Fintech Forum. He's very well known for his involvement in uh, fintech accelerators uh, in Asia. Uh, first of all, welcome, Oriol. Thank you very much, Effie. It's my pleasure to be here today. Yeah, when I think of you, I think of someone who has um, uh, a rare and, and very uh, impactful combination of background and, and knowledge and experience um, since, you know, financial law and, and um, technology and your passion in innovation is really Im- important. So I, I reached out to discuss with you, of course, about the digital one, as you have recently published research in that area and you speak a lot uh, about central bank digital currencies and, and the innovations in that uh, part. For, for our um, audience, I'd like to start with a kind of a back uh, flash to what has happened with the digital one as I have recently published an article chronicling you know, the history of the digital one and the pilots, that uh, have been done. And the highlight, the more recent activity that's interesting to me is the fact that BNP Paribas China launched um, a digital one management system for its corporate clients. I see that as pretty significant and more significant than the flashy, you know, Winter Olympics in Beijing, you know, piloting of the digital uh, Juan. And as you know, Oriol, BNP Paribas, because of this uh, new service, they are facing questions from politicians in in Washington who want to know uh, what is this project and whether it uh, has political uh, ramifications given the tensions that exist. And on top of that, uh, I think the situation shows that there is um, an interest, a market interest and a market need for these management systems because DBS Bank in Singapore also launched a similar offering for institutional clients in China to receive digital one payments. So for me, Oriol, this is very interesting. And I want to hear your high level view uh, on this. 
um, on this uh, topic, which of course is about fintech, but it's also geopolitics. It's also controversial. Uh, it's interesting. Indeed, indeed, I, I fully agree, agree with you, Effie. I think it's pretty much what you mentioned. Uh, this topic is uh, intertwined you know, with um, politics or geopolitics, uh, finance. So there's a lot to it, and it becomes kind of difficult sometimes to talk about digital yuan without uh, mentioning other aspects. I mean, you, you said it now, no? I mean, a bank decides to start uh, a new project and then, well, they need to face questions. Uh, that's what's going on. No, we are living in a polarized world. So this is why digital yuan per se, even when you want to approach this topic from a neutral position, usually implies or involves uh, certain uh, geopolitics to, to a certain extent. And well, whereas, uh, it is like that. I always try to make my, my articles and everything as neutral as possible you know, by trying to analyze the situation and provide a picture, even though, I mean, it's not always possible, of course, but that's what I try to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, payments have always been core to economic activity, whether, you know, in the old form of cash and notes, checks, whatever, right? Or in this CBDC or or other digital form. So obviously economic activities are also political, you know, and policy related and shaped by policies that there's no doubt about that. I don't think that will ever change no matter what future we, we live in, right? Policies are going to determine um, a lot of the economic activity. Oriol, I, I want to go back and ask you some basic questions that still remain, um, I would say, confusing. People don't understand what are the differences and similarities of Alipay and Tencent Pay, that is very well known and understood how that functions. How does that relate to the digital one? And to the interbanking systems like SIPs of China or SWIFT? And how do these relate with the digital Juan? It would be wonderful if you could spell this out for us once and for all. No, that's a very interesting question. It's a very interesting one, which we could discuss for hours No, But um, to make it uh, brief, I would say that um, well, digital yuan is a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, which means, as you all know, it's um, well, a currency issued by a central bank in a digital form, etc. So that's a digital yuan, also known sometimes as DCP or ECNY or ERMB. So it's all the same, digital yuan. Then we have uh, Alipay, WeChat Pay, you know, which are uh, well, payment companies from China, like uh, huge ones. And at the very beginning, it raised some questions in the sense that some people were wondering uh, inside China and also in the West, uh, what role will digital yuan play? Will digital yuan replace those companies? Because one very important thing for all of us to remember is that China or Chinese people, and I'm talking about mainland China, that's not the case of Hong Kong or other places in Asia, but people in mainland China, they do not use much cash, especially if you go to big cities like I don't know if you take a plane and you go to not just Beijing or, Shang or Shanghai, but even, I don't know, Chengdu, Shenzhen, uh, you will see that uh, it's actually rare to find anyone carrying cash or paying with cash to the point that you may go to, well, to shops, to restaurants, 
and, and even if you try to pay with cash, they may not accept cash. And this is so because, well, it's a society that it's, it's not like very reliant on cash, meaning that people use other means of payments and not just credit cards, not just uh, union pay, etc., but also Alipay, WeChat Pay, WeChat Pay is what we call a super app, not just WeChat Pay, but WeChat in general, it's a super app. Uh, super apps are very common in China. Super apps are those apps that allow you to do practically like everything. Uh, WeChat, as you know, is it's like WhatsApp, it's a texting app, now you can send uh, chats, messages, but you can also like do pretty much everything. You can as well pay using WeChat Pay, or that's the case of Alipay as well, no? So um, many people use those to pay, and many people were wondering initially, Will Digital Yuan, uh, has it been created to replace those apps? And well, initially I know there were those questions, but after a while, uh, China stated, and then they stated that, and by the facts, it's been proven that it was true, that uh, actually a Digital Yuan didn't come to replace those. Digital Yuan will be integrated within those. So you may be wondering, is Alipay or Alipay the only way in which people in the future will be able to use a Digital Yuan? No, people will also be able uh, to use, for example, their uh, digital banking uh, wallets no, to pay uh, using the digital yuan. I mean, there will be several ways, but one of them will be the integration of digital yuan inside Alipay, WeChat Pay. So to, to answer the first part of your question, Alipay, WeChat Pay are, are payments companies that provide uh, you know, people as a means to, to electronically pay for the purchases. Uh, and Digital Yuan will be integrated within or inside those uh, apps. And then you also asked me the difference uh, between Digital Yuan and, and Swift, for example. Well, I think that's interesting because rather than focusing on the difference, I think we should focus on how or to what extent Digital Yuan will be able to make certain circumstances change. We also, for example, last year, uh, because of well, the, the Ukrainian conflict, that uh, SWIFT is a powerful tool, no? in the sense that if you uh, remove a country from using SWIFT, you are, you are affecting this country's economy for sure. I mean, to what extent it will depend, no? but, but it affects, of course, enormously for a country to be left out of SWIFT. Of that network, yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly, to, from the network, no? because this network is, is, is vital, it's pivotal in most of the world. So digital yuan, it's part of what I wrote in my article in this report that I published at the Blockchain Research Institute uh, called the Digital Yuan and Cross-Border Payments. It's part of these trends of de-dollarization that we are experiencing right now. I'm not saying by that that we, uh, that no country, you know, will use the US dollar in the future or anything like that, but we are experiencing those trends in which, or, or, or through which the digital, uh, uh, sorry, the US dollar is becoming uh, less used. Of course, uh, this needs to be like um, put into perspective. I'm not saying by that that uh, overnight the US dollar will become like obsolete or anything like that. I'm just saying that we are seeing more and more countries willing to use other currencies to settle their uh, transactions, their international trade transactions, than the US dollar. We saw, for example, uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia finance minister in Davos, in Switzerland, no, in January, saying that they would be open to considering like using other currencies. We saw Brazilian president Lula da Silva in Beijing in April uh, talking about that as well, and many other world leaders are talking about that, uh, especially this year, no, uh, where we know that the Fed's um, interest rates um, have been causing certain instability or, or concerns to other countries. So uh, I would say the digital yuan is part of these liberalization trends, meaning that 
and I'm not saying that it will be like that for sure, but it could be part of a parallel financial system created in parallel to um, well, to SWIFT or the existing uh, network uh, gateways. I'm not saying that this will be like that because, for example, China joined, uh, sorry, signed a joint venture with SWIFT in February 2021 um, to internationalize the yuan. So I'm not saying that this digital yuan has been created necessarily, you know, to affect SWIFT, etc. in any way, you know, but it can be like, uh, this can be one of the results. You know, we can be like seeing a world in the future where perhaps thanks not only to the digital yuan, but to other CBDCs as well, um, perhaps certain sanctions will not be that effective because countries will have like other ways. Alternatives. Alternative. Exactly, alternatives. Oriol, what is the relation of China with the SWIFT network? Um, is, is Are Chinese banks part of the SWIFT network? And, and how does this relate? Uh, have, have there been projects, POCs with SWIFT uh, for the digital one? Well, uh, as you said before, China has its own uh, network, but still it has an interesting and curious relationship with SWIFT in the sense that uh, it's not like, uh, like uh, to put it this way, they don't talk to each other because um, we saw, for example, this interesting joint venture signed in February 2021 uh, between uh, the People's Bank of China and SWIFT to, uh, you know, in theory, use SWIFT to promote uh, uh, the yuan. To be honest, I don't know um, how that uh, is going right now. I know that this joint venture was signed, so I don't know in practice what it has involved in the end. Probably it hasn't been put into practice yet. My point is that even though China has its own networks, uh, well, it's not like uh, they are not open to collaborate because we saw this joint uh, uh, venture, but of course, talking about banking in China is a, is a tricky topic because uh, the Chinese banking system, you need to think, is very different from that of many countries in the West. Actually, before even starting, you know, to get involved in the fintech world in 2016, 17, uh, part of my research when I was doing my, my PhD and work as well, aside from research, was on the Chinese banking system. I focus on shadow banking, but I covered the banking system as a whole. And well, that's probably because uh, you know I, I I worked in Hong Kong for a for a public listed company it was very you know exposed to to the, the banking system, and it's interesting because well at least for for many years you know the Chinese banking system and even now uh, it's a system where you need to think that most of the major actually all the the big banks are public banks they are state owned state controlled so un unlike other countries this all this has many implications you know because for example. It implies that it has been very difficult for for small and medium enterprises to access the credit. No, I mean the credit was usually reserved for for bigger projects, meaning that this is why a parallel shadow banking system was created. So I know this is not related necessarily to what we are discussing, but uh, the idea is that the Chinese banking system is actually quite different from that in in other countries. No, I know that the basics may may be the same, but there are important uh, differences. But it is very much related, Oriol, because one of the the um, financial inclusion potential of the digital one in China is to facilitate more access to credit for small businesses. And, and this has nothing to do with the cross-border payments, but it has to do with the continuous strategic focus on more financial inclusion through the digitalization 
of, of the Chinese economy, correct? Yes, yes, that's right. I mean, when I said it wasn't that related, it's because, you know, I was thinking more no, of the yes. picture and talking, thinking about macros and this and that, but this is true what you're saying. I mean, um, it's very related because even though we are focusing in our this episode more on talking about, you know, digitalization, cross-border payments, SWIFT, it is so that internally, domestically, a digital yuan, same as other CBDCs, no, will help in several areas. And when applied to China, digital yuan uh, will be able to promote financial inclusion, for example. And financial inclusion means as well what you said. It means that, it, in theory, it may help those people, those companies that couldn't get access to, to credit, to get access to credit. And it also um, means that uh, digital yuan, according to, to experts, and this is something I've been defending myself as well in, in all my my articles for, for three years, uh, Digital Yuan will be able to help um, reduce the importance of the shadow banking system in China, which I must say is not uh, as important or big as it was a few years ago when I was dealing about this topic more intensely, 2016-17. China's shadow banking system was, was huge. It is still big, but I would say maybe it's not that big, but still, it's a concern that keeps appearing and vanishing and then reappearing again in China shadow banking. So I think that Digital Yuan will be well, an effective tool when it comes to trying to tackle this issue or reducing it as, as much as possible. Yeah. The shadow banking that you mentioned uh, uh, back in 2016, uh, was does that include the peer-to-peer -peer lending sector that, that we all know had boomed and busted and, and, and so on? Do you include that under the shadow banking um, umbrella, if you want. Yes, yes, I, I included uh, both uh, those. Uh, I mean, for shadow banking, I included like uh, any kind of uh, credit facilitation activity performed outside the traditional banking system. And when I say outside the traditional banking system, it can be peer-to-peer -peer platforms, as you, as you just said, Effie, or even when the banks themselves, the, the same banks, offered non-regulated products. This was very common in China as well. There were those famous WMPs, wealth management products, which were products that were offered by the banks themselves, but those were not like properly regulated. So this is why we were talking about shadow banking, even though it was offered by a bank itself. So both peer-to-peer -peer platforms and wealth management products offered by banks were shadow banking. And this sector was huge in China precisely because of how difficult it was for certain SMEs to access credit. I got you. I understand. So, so back to uh, this cross-border perspective uh, with the, the digital fund that, that you have a focus. Give us um, a sense of what is going on in Asia, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, and all those areas in terms of the digital fund and, and the cross-border payments, or what should we be watching as I say, you know, we get a lot of PR of, oh, there's this big Asia Expo, the digital one is piloted, but I want to understand more about the real economy, economy the activities and, and, and the potential and what to watch going forward. No, I mean, that's a great question. And I, I fully agree with you. Uh, it's important to separate the hype from, from the reality, especially in everything uh, FinTech or even tech uh, related. Uh, because even though there's a huge potential you know, in all these areas, 
whenever you combine CBDCs and then people start talking about cryptos, which are not the same, but still yeah, yeah, yeah. To the other, and then people start talking about Web3 or the metaverse. And then in the, in the end, the, the hype is huge, but then you may lose sight of what you're actually talking about. So I think it's important to do what you just uh, you know, asked me to do, you know, to separate like the hype from the reality. Well, the reality is that uh, digital yuan, as we said before, it's a CBDC, a central bank digital currency. Um, it's been launched in China. It's actually been a long process. Uh, the research started in 2014. It ended in um, 2020, the actual research in when the pandemic started pretty much. Then there was like this two-year testing phase where China tested like the digital yuan domestically, but also for domestic uh, focus world transactions in Hong Kong. And then it was uh, launched in uh, early 2022 in the Winter Olympic Games that, that you mentioned before. Uh, but still, it's not like a full, full launch in the sense that people living in mainland China will be able to tell you much more accurately than I can. But the idea is that it's not like available everywhere, everywhere. to do everything. But yeah. uh, it's still there. It's like its use is it's growing uh, steadily. And for example, it was used for to buy securities last year. I think it was in June or July for the first time. And then the People's Bank of China, starting from this last December, uh, started to include the ECNY or digital yuan uh, in circulation as, as part of the amount of currency circulation or, or M0, uh, which means that they are starting to count that uh, officially as well. So we are seeing uh, progresses which are fast or slow, depending on how you look at that. I mean, fast compared to the rest of the world, slow if we are looking at that from the angle of someone who wants it to have it like deployed like 100% like now, no, already. Yeah. But I think it's going uh, well steadily. And then aside from China, other countries are exploring CBDCs in Asia, I mean, many others. To a point that, for example, Hong Kong, through the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, which is Hong Kong's de facto central bank, is currently involved in a, in a three CBDC projects. You know? I mean, the, the digital yuan for cross-border payments, but also M-Bridge project, which is a very interesting project, which uh, includes the central banks of uh, China, Hong Kong, uh, Thailand, and United Arab Emirates. Then there is the electronic Hong Kong dollar as well. China, sorry, um, Japan is doing uh, the pilot tests on the digital yen. Korea is... Uh, testing digital one, even though we don't know whether Japan and Korea will eventually launch it or not. But, you know, um, there are like lots of movements, movements in this area. I think that China had the first mover advantage, if we can call it this way, in the sense that uh, China was not the first country in the world to deploy a CBDC in the modern era. We saw, for example, uh, the Bahamas in the Caribbean and Nigeria coming first. The Bahamas came in September 2020 when they deployed officially the sand dollar, then in Iran and Nigeria. So China was not first first, but it was the first major economy in the world doing so, deploying their its own CBDC. And I think that encouraged others perhaps to go a bit faster, to start. I'm not saying by that that, you know, the European Union or the Eurozone wouldn't have done that. I mean, they would. So I'm not saying it's related to China, but I'm sure that many countries, especially in Asia, perhaps sped up their pace a little bit because of uh, China being so advanced. And this brings us a bit to the, to the US. Now, I mean, the US initially didn't want to, to work much on the US digital dollar, uh, but I think that circumstances made them change a bit their mind. And this is where we access maybe the realm of geopolitics. But going back to your question, I think that digital yuan is, is going well, it's moving forward steadily. Other countries are exploring their own CBDCs as well. But in Asia, I would say that uh, well, what China did is it's interesting because they came much before uh, others. Yeah, and it's also interesting because they are uh, trading partners with so many countries 
uh, in the region and, and globally, and, and we see how this potential um, can, you know, um, impact if you want the whole trade uh, uh, relationships and, and economies uh, in, in, uh, in general. Uh, Oriol, before closing, um, I wanted to ask you about um, what is your outlook overall for CBDCs in Asia uh, and kind of positive, negative risks? What's on, what's on your uh, radar? Um, what kind of KPIs do, do you watch? Um, as you said, everything is subjective. It, are, are things moving fast? Are, the, are they moving slow? Give us a sentiment uh, of, of what you're watching. Is it Singapore? Is it Hong Kong, Japan? Give us uh, a, a, your last um, uh, sentiment, if you want. Sure. Uh, well, I think that um, CBDCs in general are moving fast like uh, across the globe. I mean, we are seeing how like uh, more than 85% of central banks in the world are currently working to some extent on CBDCs. But I think that Asia is probably the continent, the area of the world where I am seeing uh, probably more interest because there are central banks like um, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, which are actually involved in more than one CBDC project or Singapore as well. So there's a huge interest in CBDCs in Asia. And this is why this is because CBDCs can actually be beneficial in many ways. I mean, we said that they can be beneficial for cross-border payments. We talked about uh, digital yuan in that sense, but it can be also beneficial for financial inclusion to make uh, payments uh, faster, more efficient, more seamless, more transparent. So I think, um, especially in Asia, no, we will be seeing many more CBDCs uh, coming in the next uh, years. Uh, India, for example, is working on digital rupee. And I think that's actually a very interesting uh, use case as well no, for CBDCs because we know that uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh have a huge unbanked um, population. People who, uh, maybe it's not because in some cases they lack money, but sometimes it's just because they lack access to a physical bank branch. And in that sense, a CBDC can be beneficial, same as virtual banking. So I think we will be seeing many more CBDCs being uh, deployed in Asia. Now, India is working in, in this uh, payment trade with as well, UPI, you know, so which is not, uh, no, it's not a CBDC, but the idea is that we will be seeing many more CBDC projects and which will bring us to phase two. Phase one is first of all, to see which country actually launches a, a CBDC. We know that China did, but then we don't know whether Japan and Korea will in the end because they are testing their own CBDCs in, uh, you know, under the assumption that they will not launch it unless they see like a rise in the use of alternative uh, electronic means of payments, meaning that perhaps there is no digital yen in the near future. I don't know, but still, in general, we will see many more wholesale and retail CBDCs in Asia. And secondly, in a few years from now, we'll be facing this uh, situation where interoperability will become key, interoperability between different CBDCs, for example. And this is why there are already some projects working on that. For example, in Davos, in, in um, I think it was in, March? Uh, no, sorry, in January as well, yes. Um, this uh, UDPN network was uh, announced. Uh, many different countries uh, have worked in UDPN, including uh, China's BSN. Uh, UDPN is going to be like, uh, well, according to themselves. What, no? what does UDPN stand for? It's uh, Universal uh, Digital Payments Network. Okay. And UDPN is a massive project which involves companies from the West, uh, from, from China, from many different places, which aims to be, according 
well, to, to, to themselves as well. No, I mean, this is not something I'm saying only yeah, like for CBDCs. Yeah, it, it isn't it interesting? I mean, um, last year, uh, it, towards the end of the year, you know, when we are all thinking, oh, what happened and projections for this year, one of my main uh, highlights was that I'm excited about innovations at the infrastructure level and CBDCs are one sort of approach but not the only one you know the UPI which is a very unique public um, infrastructure innovation that of course has had the impact because of public private partnerships because as we all know and, and you mentioned too you know if if you don't manage adoption uh, the last mile, and if you don't manage interoperability, then the impact of all, all these infrastructures will be limited, right? I mean, mm -hmm. technologically or or even from the economic activity. So I feel that this is a very exciting phase. Um, what do you think? Are we talking five years? A, a phase of innovation at the infrastructure level across borders, do you think that in five years we will see some meaningful, sizable impact coming from the East and not only China? Or yes, do you yes. think it's more 10 years? No, I think so. I think, so. I think five years is feasible. For example, when I was interviewing uh, Ifan He uh, for my podcast, Ifan is the, uh, uh, the CEO uh, of um, the, the company behind China's VSN called Red Date Technology in China. He told me that... Uh, this UDPN network, and I'm saying this because BSN is part of UDPN, this UDPN network was actually like three to five years ahead of its time because these interoperability issues will arise maybe in five years, but they want to be prepared for that. So I think that, I mean, it's hard to say, but given how fast things are moving like in this digital realm, especially after the pandemic, I would say that it's feasible to think that in five years, we will be like seeing what you said, no? seeing these, uh, these changes, these infrastructures being created and operation, operational, I think that it's feasible to talk about five years. I mean, of course, I may be wrong, who knows, but yeah, no, yeah, right yeah. now I would say it's feasible. Yeah, but it's it's not a, a science fiction, that is for exactly. people. Exactly. Or, I'd like to thank you very much for your time, for your insights. This topic is, is very, not only interesting, but very important. We are talking a, a whole region, that um, is growing in, in many ways, whether it's uh, the GDP, the economies, we're talking about um, demographics impact, geopolitics. It's a very complex world that we live in and um, we can't look at these innovations in isolation. So it's important that people like you uh, share their perspective and, and we sort of curate different perspectives to understand what the future holds. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm very excited and thank you very much for uh, sharing your insights. No, thank you very much, Effie, for allowing me to, for inviting me here. It, it's an absolute pleasure and honor to be in your podcast, uh, sharing these, uh, these thoughts about these uh, current and interesting uh, topics. And, and for our audience, uh, the best way to follow you is uh, on LinkedIn. Yes, yes, you can follow me on LinkedIn, uh, where I post like um, almost daily uh, content. 
And then uh, I also have this YouTube channel. Uh, it's uh, my name over Caudevilla, where I have my podcast, where I interview uh, relevant people from, from the area. And of course, feel free to reach out to me if you want to clarify anything or have any doubts and follow me as well. Thank you very much, Oriol. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.